message is entitled, The Fellowship of the Body of Christ. Growing up in Christ is everybody's business. Some of you indicated on the break that there were a lot more things that we could have said about the topic in the last hour, and you're right. Um, So go ahead and say them as you wish. But uh, uh, I basically hit the points of the outline to to get within the time frame, but uh, many other things to think through in terms of the implications of 1 Corinthians 12. And what we'll be talking about now will uh, in some ways dovetail with that and take it a little bit further. Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. We visited this passage once earlier. We're going to come back and look at it from another angle. It was He who gave some to be apostles, that is, the risen Christ, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Lord, we're beginning uh, to be captivated more and more by these images that Paul uses of our life as a body. Uh, Not only different members, uh, eyes, ears, hands, tongues, feet, uh, but also a growing body, uh, a body that is developing and maturing from, in a sense, infancy through childhood and young adulthood into the mature um, new man that is the church in Jesus Christ, our head. And we pray, Lord, that we would um, especially grasp um, the reality of the corporate nature of our growth uh, in grace uh, as members of the church as we look at this material now. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We often speak of our fellowship in the body of Christ Sorry, technical difficulties. I want to back up here in this pocket. I can do that. But sometimes when we talk about fellowship, it means little more than uh, after church socializing over a cup of coffee and a donut. Um, It just sort of becomes the pious expression of uh, that reality. And so, uh, come on over for fellowship means come on over for dessert or for dinner or for whatever it might be. Um, it's a term that gets used so frequently that it, it's kind of become debased. It's like awesome. There's no more boring word anymore in the English language than awesome. Isn't that awesome? 
Um, we need some new adjectives. That one is really threadbare. Uh, and then when you want to use it for something really awesome, it doesn't work anymore. So, and in a sense, fellowship's the same way. We use it, uh, but it often loses its uh, meaning and its, its wonder. And so I want us to think a little bit now about the theme of fellowship so that our ministry to one another will be authentic and will be useful, or as useful as it can be for the building up of the body life of our local congregations and also to the degree that we can our regional relationships as brothers and sisters in the regional church of Southern California. In the passage before us now, Paul tells us what he is concerned with in this whole chapter. And it comes in the opening verse of chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. As Christians, we have received a particular calling. A calling out of darkness into light, out of death into life, out of ourselves and into union and communion with Jesus the Messiah, our risen King. This calling is a free and gracious calling. Nothing we can do can merit such a wonderful gift of salvation. And yet, Paul says, there are, in a sense, strings attached to this calling. Having been called by God, we now must live our lives in a manner that is appropriate to that new relationship into which we have been called. A new relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a new relationship with one another in Christ. In verse 17, Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do, You were taught with regarding to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And this whole chapter, indeed the remainder of this letter, is designed to help you see what those changes are, what differences should be made in your life if you're going to live in a manner appropriate to this high and holy calling that you've received in Christ, and then how you can put those changes on practically as new creatures in Christ. But what I want to emphasize here is that this process of change is not merely an individual one. It is a corporate transformation. And that's something that we American Christians, I think especially, have difficulty uh, becoming accustomed to. We can think the idea, we can say, yes, I understand the difference between individual and corporate, but we are so used to thinking about corporate entities as the aggregate of the individual components uh, that for us to think about the corporate first and the individual flowing from the corporate just seems backwards, upside down to us. And so we have, we have difficulty Uh, thinking in these terms. All of us are changing together. All of us must change together. And so assisting one another with those changes from old to new is an essential aspect of our life together in Jesus Christ. In our former manner of life, selfishness was fine. 
Look out for number one. Get all you can. But now you must be concerned not with your own interests, Paul says in Philippians, but with the interests of others. You see, we even soften that when we translate it. Like the NIV says, don't be concerned only with your interests, but with the interests of others. But Paul, for emphasis sake, says, don't be concerned with your own interests, but with the interests of others. Well, you know, we always want to make sure that we nuance the Bible in a way that the Holy Spirit forgot to do it, and so we want to, you know, we want to soften it. So we don't let the Lord hit us with the emphases that we need. We need to be concerned about each other and not about ourselves because this growth in the Lord is a corporate growing. And that doesn't mean that we don't individually participate in it, but not in isolation from the growth of the whole body. Our work of service, our ministry that Paul talks about here in this passage, is accomplished to a large part through the fellowship, through the commonness, the collectiveness that we experience together in Christ as members of His one body, the church. So we want to think about this for a few minutes together uh, this morning. As I said, fellowship is not mere socializing, although that can be a dimension of a fellowship ministry. It is a ministry growing out of the reality of what God has given us in common. And that, namely, is Christ and His saving benefits. We use the term too loosely, and more often than not, we use it in a sense different from the meaning that the word has in the New Testament. The term translated test, uh, fellowship in the New Testament is koinonia, which means to have something in common, to be united together in the possession of something. And what the church has in common is Christ Himself and those benefits of redemption that flow from Christ. And so we experience together justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification because we share together in one Christ in whom those benefits are um, uh, personified, who, in whom we find those benefits. And so the fellowship of the church is not associative. It's not social in that sense, but rather it's theological and spiritual. It is created by God. It exists on every Sunday as we gather together, and it exists in the intervening weekdays when we are scattered apart from one another. In the biblical sense, we always have fellowship with one another, not just when we are physically together, because we always have fellowship in Christ. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So you and I are not called to create fellowship, but rather to establish, uh, or to establish unity in the body of Christ, but rather to make every effort to keep or to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It's there. Our job is to take care of it. So it's like your brand new car. You didn't have to go to Detroit and assemble it all by yourself. It comes off the showroom floor nice and, and, uh, uh, and shiny and new. And then your job is to take care of it. 
uh, to keep it looking good and keeping, keep it running in good condition. God has given us in Christ the unity of the church. Our job then is to act in such a way that we maintain it and preserve it and make it fruitful for the benefit not only of those who are already members of the church, but also as the church carries out its mission in the world to make disciples of the nations. Paul tells us what comprises that spiritual unity, that fellowship. In verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if I gave you a test at the end of the message uh, and asked you what does the word fellowship mean, what does it signify, uh, I hope you'll be able to give me a better uh, answer than um, coffee and donuts. So, fellowship, therefore, is, also, uh, is a ministry based on our spiritual need to build one another up in the faith. The spiritual unity and fellowship of the body of Christ is so important that Paul tells us to make every effort to maintain it. Now, you all know the difference between making casual efforts half-hearted efforts, and making every effort to see some job done. And oftentimes it has a lot to do with um, how important the task at hand is for you. You know, if you have a job that you have to do and it doesn't mean all that much to you, then you'll give it an effort, but if things uh, don't quite come together, don't work quite right, you'll just say, well, that's good enough. You know, you'll go so far, and then once you decide you've spent enough time and energy on it, that's good enough. But there are other things that are so important to you that you want to get them exactly right, and you will do everything that you can possibly do, anything you can think of. You'll call up technical support on the telephone to find out how to solve this problem, to get it just the way it should be. And oftentimes I think our efforts at maintaining the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace are simply half-hearted because it doesn't mean that much to us. And so we'll go out of our way a little bit to build up the body, but if it's very, very demanding, I mean, just think about things like attending uh, services where you might be able to be an encouragement or help to one another. Um, you know, if you, if you bought tickets to, to a, a sporting event or to a concert and you've had your your heart set on it for months, and you spend a lot of money on it, then if somebody calls you up and they've got a problem, or there's this disruption or that disruption, I mean, you'll become very, very creative to get all of the barricades out of the way so that you can finally get to that vacation or to that concert or to that sporting event. But other things that don't mean that much to you, let's say like a Wednesday night service, it doesn't take very much to make you say, oh, well, I just can't make it this week. Uh, I'm too busy, the, the kids are sick, they're this or that. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's never a reason to miss a service, but, you know, do we make every effort? And that's just one sort of obvious illustration, but that's what Paul is calling us to. We saw in 1 Corinthians 12 that for any Christian to say or to act like he or she doesn't need the other members of the body, that person is guilty of schism, of dividing the body sinfully dismembering or distorting or deforming the bride of Christ. God takes our fellowship, our service together very, very seriously. Those who do not understand the true nature of our fellowship in Christ 
often think in a kind of a take-it-or-leave-it manner of, the pers- uh, uh, of personal preference. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, well, I, just, I don't want to go to the worship services anymore because I just don't get anything out of them. Uh, they don't mean that much to me. Or I, 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 don't, I don't like small group prayer meetings, and so I'm not going to go. And it's sort of like the church is expected to lay out a smorgasbord of of opportunities, and then we can just go along and kind of pick and choose. And certainly there are churches that have huge programs, way more than anybody could ever participate in. But most of our Orthodox Presbyterian sessions make judgments about church programs by saying what is really necessary to give occasion to the body life that we really think this church needs in order to grow and flourish. And they don't just invent programs for the heck of it. And so when we think about what is on the table, it's not like hometown buffet where there's way more food than you could ever eat in a million years. Pick what you want. It's more like the meal that you get served at home where mom or dad or whoever does the cooking has picked out you know, the basic food groups and there they are. And, and you're expected to have some of all of it because it's all good for you and it's designed to be balanced. Well, if you take to the dinner table at home the attitude that you can have at hometown buffet, things are not going to go well. You're not going to be healthy. So if we don't see how indispensable this body life is, this joint ministry is, we may approach it simply on this on the attitude or on the basis of personal preference. If you're not very social then, If you don't enjoy parties, then you just stay home and kind of do your own thing and stay unengaged and uh, not participating in the life of the body. Or you think you can skip this or that because it really doesn't do much for you. I mean, I do want you to feel, if the shoe fits at least, a little guilty about skipping the regular gatherings of the body of Christ. Again, there are exceptional situations, but I really think that if your session has laid out for you the kind of program where your life can flourish between corporate gatherings for the whole body and then the deeper intimacy of small group gatherings, then you ought to make every effort to participate as fully as possible in those things, not only for your own spiritual benefit, but because that's where you can give yourself to the body. Our time together particularly in this fragmented culture and society, is just that important. Our attitude, remember, should be the attitude of Christ. Selflessness and service. I've often thought at meetings, um, particularly in our small churches, you know, maybe there'll be a Bible study or something, and some elder has uh, set aside time. He's sacrificed to, uh, to put together a Bible study. Uh, to have something to give, and then and then and people, you know, they don't show up. Well, why didn't they show up? Well, because something was more important to them. And if just a few of them had said, you know, the teacher has worked hard to prepare this lesson tonight, I'm going to go because of what he has put into this, rather than what I think I can live without. Those meetings would be much, much better attended, but we just don't think that way. We don't say, I'll go to a meeting to give. We only think about going to a meeting or an assembly of some sort to receive. And that sometimes even affects our 
main corporate worship on Sunday morning. People stay away because they really think they can get along pretty well without it. We can't, brothers and sisters. And we don't need to if our attitude is that of Christ. Selflessness and service. Just remember, Jesus Himself was so concerned to maintain, to create, in His case, the spiritual unity and fellowship of the church that He made every effort He hung on that cross that He might create out of the many one new man. In His resurrection, Jesus gave gifts to us for ministry. Not only the leadership gifts that we talked about that are mentioned in this Ephesians 4 passage, but more broadly, the gifts to the whole church that were mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. Each one of you, As a Christian and as a member of a body of Christ, a local body has been given grace and gifts which are essential to the growth and service of others in the body. I need what you have to offer, and you need what I have to offer. And you rob me if you do not give to me what Christ has given you for my benefit. And I rob you if I do not give to you. And we can't do that by sending emails to one another, except in a very, very minimal sense. We need the body life. Earlier in this letter, uh, Paul declared that it was God's purpose in raising up Jesus, or raising us up with Jesus, to show in the coming ages the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians verses 6 and 7. In Ephesians 3.7, Paul reminds us that the riches of Christ are unsearchable, and the richness of this grace is exhibited in the ministry of fellowship between the members of the body. We are not all the same. There is diversity, but we enjoy the diversity, the richness of the diversity, when we are serving God together. So to use Peter's words, Each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. Your gifts are discovered in your service. Not only did the risen Christ give gifts to each of us as members of His body, but He's given gifts in the form of our leaders who can challenge us and direct us as well. Okay, uh, I guess if this matches your outline, I want to move on to, to number three then. The growth and the maturity of the church is a corporate matter as much as an individual one. The goal of our service of fellowship is maturity in Christ, verses 14 and 15. Then we will no longer be infants. <clears throat> pardon me. Instead, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, That is Christ. It's not enough for you to tend your own garden, looking to your own growth in grace. The New American Standard translation of verse 16 is this, "...from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Every joint has something to supply. Every individual part has a proper function. 
in order to contribute to the growth of the whole. And so here's the same kind of ideas that, that Paul was talking about uh, in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. Without the participation of each member of the body's each member, the body's growth will be stunted or deformed. I was asking Barbara about her knee brace, and she was telling me about her, her problem there and the pain that comes and, and the fact that that part is not functioning like it should anymore. And the doctors are trying to do this or that or the other thing to try and solve the problem without surgery, but maybe eventually it's going to need surgery. Well, we have all had those kind of problems, those kinds of deformities. We've seen people who have arms so withered and atrophied, that they don't function at all. They're there. You can tell it's supposed to be an arm, but there's no operation. There's no function to it at all. And, and we pity people in that condition. We ought to pity churches that are in that condition as well, where members have, for whatever reason, either because they say, I have nothing to contribute or I don't need anything, they've ceased to function and the body begins to be deformed. And, and I ought to mention, because I did leave it out last time, uh, Dave uh, graciously reminded me too, that you know God not only puts the mix of people in a certain locality, but then he puts that mix of people in that place at that time in order for it to carry out its particular uh, function, its particular service uh, in, the, uh, in the region, uh, the area where it's found as well. And so it's not just, we don't want to be just inwardly looking that inward building up is also for the purpose of extensively uh, reaching out to uh, fulfill the Great Commission as well. But we all have a role to play. And if you're not doing your part, then the body is limping, or it may be crawling. And I do think, you know, if we're honest about, uh, about our churches, sometimes, uh, particularly for visitors, they'll come and they'll see the stunting. You know, I mean, I've, I've heard more than once uh, people remark, you know, that, uh, that something on the bulletin will say that a church is a friendly church, uh, but nobody in the church actually came up and greeted them as a visitor, and they felt very much like an outsider. So it's sort of like, well, do I believe the bulletin or do I believe the people? Hmm, hard to say shouldn't need to put it in the bulletin. If you're a friendly church, you don't have to say you're a friendly church. Everybody will get it. So, we need to function and we need to examine ourselves uh, collectively in our, in our local bodies uh, in terms of that need. In the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says, the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. So there again, its growth is the growth that God has ordained for it, the growth that God empowers and builds up. The body of Christ in your local congregation grows as God wants it to when each of you has fellowship. That is, when you share one another's gifts in common. The grace of God and the gifts of God belong to you collectively, and each of you participate in them as you are united together in common. That's the common good that needs to be promoted. As you give, others receive. As Jesus reminds us, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Whether it's in a marriage or a friendship or in church relations, if you're worried about whether you're going to get what you need, 
then you're never going to get what you need. It's only as everybody worries about if they're giving what they can give, then everybody gets their needs met without anybody having to demand anything. Personal growth and maturing without taking a direct and vital interest in the growth of your brothers and sisters is inadequate and ultimately self-serving. You know, I remember when I was in my early days um, as an evangelical, there was a great emphasis, and this is not a bad emphasis, but, you know, if you were converted, the first thing you wanted to do was begin to have a personal quiet time, personal devotions, read the Word and pray. And, um, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's very, very important for our communion with Christ. But I, I didn't hear anybody say the very first thing you want to do if you're converted is get connected to a body of Christ where you'll tap into the corporate. It was sort of like, and in, in, in some forms, you could have a flourishing relationship with God without ever going to church or joining a church. I mean, that was always a good idea, but it wasn't indispensable. And even within the fellowship of the body, people, or I shouldn't say fellowship, see there I'm using it myself in the wrong way. Even within the association of the body, the fellowship may break down if people are saying, I need to just make sure that I grow, I develop, I um, am built up without being concerned about my brothers and sisters. And here we can, here we can uh, take a lesson from our military personnel, particularly those who find themselves in combat. You've probably heard as well as I do that when you get to the men on the front lines, and my son certainly bore this testimony out, you're not thinking about whether you're going to win the war on terrorism or whether you're going to make the world safe for democracy or whether you're going to end all war. You're trying to take care of your buddy, and you want to make sure that your buddy is taking care of you. That's how you fight. And you don't win a battle if you don't care what's going on with your buddies around you. It's a group effort. And I think oftentimes uh, we're like competitive, immature people who are thinking, look at me, how fast I'm running. I'm beating everybody else. But if you're really serving the body, even if you could run ahead of all of them, you need to go back and find the straggler and come alongside him so that he can finish his course, so that she can achieve what God has called them to. That will be your great personal victory in helping one another grow to that point. Those individual expressions of piety and spiritual discipline are are very, very fine. They're excellent, but they ought not to be cultivated at the expense. And I'll say this also, this will get me in trouble probably with somebody, but I think that's even true when we try and balance the responsibility of our family life as covenant families with the covenant family, which is the church. Uh, You know as well as I do that, particularly in recent years, there's been a growing emphasis on the family at the expense of everything else. And some of our churches have suffered from, from a fragmented body life because everybody is so concerned with what are in and of themselves legitimate concerns of family life. And so when they make the, the choice, family or church, they'll always choose family although they would prefer that their pastors and elders would choose church, that is, our needs, over their family needs. I mean, I I can't imagine if I didn't show up some Sunday morning to preach because I said, well, you know, my family really needs me. And so I've got to concentrate on that, you see. We want some people to sacrifice, 
But we all need to make sacrifices. But again, sacrifice in that biblical way, and, I, you know, and I'm saying these things for emphasis, this is broad strokes, a lot of this needs to be nuanced, broken down, and particularly practicalized, and it's just not possible to, to parse it all out in a talk like this. But if you give yourself to anything, if you sacrifice anything for the sake of a biblical goal, God will not cause you to suffer loss. And I even think in my, in my family, you know, my, my kids had to make lots of sacrifices in order for me to carry out my ministry. But I don't think any one of them would say they suffered loss because of that, because somebody else in the church was sacrificing to come alongside them at times and to help and to build them up. So someone was covering my, my rear while I was fighting here serving the Lord here. And we need to have that sense that together we grow. And that requires that all of us watch out for one another and help one another. I mean, just think of Paul's own example. Uh, we, we, um, we often read these verses, Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Okay, If I stay alive... Fruitful labor, which will be a blessing to you. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart, to die, and to be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. There's Paul making a concrete life and death decision, not on the basis of what is preferable or better for him personally, but what is more useful for the life of the body. If I die, I'm with the Lord, it's going to be wonderful. But if I die and go to be with the Lord, you will suffer. And so I would rather stay, and I'm convinced I will stay, because of that greater usefulness. Fellowship, then, like love itself, does not seek its own satisfaction, but eagerly looks for an opportunity to become a blessing to another Christian. So find strangers, find maybe visitors to your congregation, or there are as small as our churches are sometimes, there are still people that we have almost nothing to do with in terms of personal intimacy and service. It's too easy for us to gravitate to our friends or to our family connections. You know, at our church we have a um, a fellowship Sunday every uh, first Sunday of the month, and we have a meal together, as many of you do, I'm sure. And I just kind of watch the way the connections are made. And even though I regularly ask the congregation not to follow the easy rut into the same kind of, you know, because we've got all these nice uh, coffee table tables now, nice round ones and everything, so you get a little group of you know, a few people, and, and of course, you know, families sit together, and if you've got a big family, then there's no room for anybody else, and that's okay, because you've got to feed kids and stuff like that, but it would, it would be nice to just watch us reconfigure on a regular basis, and particularly we have Lao people who meet with us on that first Sunday, and the Laos are still primarily over here, and the English-speaking people, whatever their ethnic background, are over here, and, and maybe a little cross-pollination on the edges now and again, but that's, that's about as far as we've gotten so far. So we need to keep working on it. It doesn't come 
easily to us. It doesn't come naturally. But we need to give ourselves to that kind of service. Now, how can we accomplish this service? It's interesting that Paul sprinkles a number of recommendations throughout this chapter, and I'm just going to read these. I can't develop them. But verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Verse 25, put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You know, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say speak the truth because if you don't, you're violating the ninth commandment? He says speak the truth because you belong to one another. You are members of one body. Verse 26, don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Then verse 28, there's our thief there. Stop stealing and start working and giving generously to meet the needs of others. Uh, Verse 29, do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful, what? For building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit all who listen. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. By the way, I just have to tell you parenthetically, and I said at the beginning of the week that I hoped and prayed that God might bless some of you with reconciliation where that was necessary, and I just want to praise God that uh, a brother and I were able to take care of some business yesterday afternoon that is 15 years old, and with repentance and mutual forgiveness, we're bound together again, and so... uh, and actually, I had that in mind as, uh, as one of my hopes for this week. And so, uh, um, uh, at least some of us got reconciled this week. And I hope others of you may have that same experience. <clears throat> and of course, we could carry on this, uh, these suggestions or recommendations about the kinds of things that we should do together. And here I will just refer you to the, uh, the sheet, again, that I put up here, the two-column one. Uh, just titled, One Anothering, Service as Normal Life in the Church as Members of One Body. Um, the kinds of things and, uh, where, that we're supposed to do for each other. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Live in harmony with one another. Instruct one another. Even greet one another with a holy kiss. Agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. Serve one another in love. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another and build each other up. Encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Those are the kinds of things that we owe to each other. And remember yesterday I said Paul had this sense of not laboring alone. He knew that many people in the church, among the leadership and among the rank and file membership, were laborers together with him. Well, he also has this sense that we are 
bound up in ministry to one another, and it comes in many, many, many forms. I mean, you could, you could preach a message on every one of those phrases that I just raced through, and you need to think about those things. That's your job description. God has given to you the work of service. And I and your leaders have to teach you, we have to draw your attention to these things, we have to help equip you, but then we have to hold you accountable to that kind of ministry. But it should flow out of you. We shouldn't have to to flog you like slaves to the quarry. It should flow out of you as the rich grace of Christ and your gratitude. I mean, we can't sing how deep the Father's love for us if we're not willing then to turn and express that same kind of sacrificial love to one another, it just won't work. There's a name for it. Hypocrisy. But as we drink in deeply and richly of the grace of God, of His Spirit, then it must flow out. And Jesus says it will flow out of us to one another, and not just to those who are already into the church, but also to the world and to as many as God will call, because there's still those who are far off that need to be brought near through the ministry of the church. And I would just say quickly here, and I'm going to have to wrap this up pretty quick, a word about discovering our spiritual gifts. I mentioned this just in passing. Many are concerned to discover uh, what their personalized spiritual gift is. And there are surveys and there are questionnaires. There are books that you can read. You know, what are your interests? What are your aptitudes? I really think that's the wrong approach. It's backwards. The Spirit's gifts are given for service. And so I think gifts are discovered in their use. And so start with the needs of the people around you. What should be done? Who needs to be taken care of? And as you give yourself up to those things, even things that you don't think you're very good at or that you don't like doing, if you give yourself, you'll find out. God will show you through the people of God where your gifts are. And if you meet the need, then you will discover your gift. It may even turn out, and this is kind of scary, but it's been my experience, it may even turn out that you're really, really gifted at something that you really don't like to do very much. And when I was in seminary, guys would say, man, I want to be a minister because I want to counsel people. I want to help them solve their problems. And I thought, boy, not me. (laughs) I'm happy enough to preach, but I don't want to get my hands dirty in counseling. And I would find any excuse that I could not to counsel for years and years and years. But when I did what I didn't feel like doing and didn't think I was any good at, the Lord in His grace and mercy would bless it. So then you can't turn your back on God's blessing, so you go back again. But even now, after 30 plus years, I mean, I don't get nervous when I have to preach, but I agonize over having to sit down in counseling sessions and, and, and deal with people with the raw edge of their, their problems and their difficulties and their griefs. I mean, it eats me alive, and I don't find that a pleasant experience. But you have to do it because those people need your ministry. And that's not just for a pastor. That's for all of us in this one anothering. So you may find out that the things that you never would have chosen as your spiritual gift turn out to be it because you sacrificially gave yourself to meet a need. Well, let me 
And this is, I think, where I added a fourth where I didn't put it in that outline. But just the, this is more just like a, a laundry list for fostering fellowship in the regional church. I've been talking primarily about the local church. Um, and this, is, this, is, this can be almost as useless as useless can be. Um, because we can create forms... But only you can fill those forms, whether it's the local church's ministry. I mean, you can, you know, print it in the bulletin, morning service, Sunday school, evening service, midweek meetings or small group meetings or ladies' Bible studies or, or this or that. But if nobody comes, it's just paper. But if the forms are there, are there and then you say, these are opportunities, I can fill these forms with service, with fellowship, with ministry, then they'll be very, very valuable. And I think people over the years here in the Regional Church of Southern California have been concerned to provide more forms in which this kind of mutual ministry, this common service of fellowship can come to expression. But it all depends on whether you see the importance and the value of participating. So, obviously, there's something like family camp. Uh, this has been going on for a lot of years. It's been a rich blessing to people who participate. But we still have a lot of people in the local churches of the regional church who have almost no representation, no participation. Now, I don't think that's because the Blue Ridge Bible Conference doesn't bust. Uh, they've even tried to foster congregational participation by encouraging sessions to pay the pastor's way to come for free. And that may or may not um, have made a big difference. So here's a form, a chance, one of the rare chances for a whole, well, it's the only chance for a whole week that we have to share a common life together. This is our little commune for one, for one week a year. Do we use it? Do we see it as valuable? And as you're here, do you really mix and mingle and really say, this is a time for me to meet people that I don't already know, to spend time serving people that I can't see every Sunday and care for? Or do we still kind of break out in terms of our own local congregations and, and so we're sort of like amoeba that kind of swim in and around each other. And again, there's a little cross-pollination on the edges. <laughs> Regional church picnics grew out of the family camp a few years ago. The idea was, this is great fellowship, can we do it more often? So the deacon, diaconal committee set up a spring and a fall regional picnic. And at first, you know, they kind of was, woo, wow, great. But now they're on the schedule, they're always there. We get the announcements, John Novinger sends out the emails and all that kind of stuff. And maybe we go or maybe we don't go because... They're on Saturday mornings, and Saturday mornings are busy family times, or you've got to work, or whatever. I mean, you list all of the reasons why we don't go, and I'm saying, me too. Do we care to fill the form with the substance of service? Joint worship services. We could do more with this. Some of our churches are geographically close enough to each other so whether it's just two congregations that are relatively close together or even in a regional setting, and I know in the Los Angeles area at least they have a, um, a Reformation Day service, that, uh, but I, I haven't ever uh, 
been able to attend one from San Diego, so I don't know whether those meetings are well attended and well represented among the congregations or not. We have a Good Friday service in San Diego, uh, and um, it's not very well represented. It's usually a full house, but the full house usually comes from one or two congregations. Um, Again, joint worship services. Hymn sings, you have some of those uh, in the L.A. area. Um, I think one great blessing over the years, at least as I hear from it, I've never been invited to the women's retreat. I mean, I did speak there one time. <laughs> I did speak there uh, one Sunday morning uh, for their worship service when my wife was the speaker. But, I mean, our, our ladies that come back, and we have a good representation, I thank God for that, and they're revved up every time they come back. It's always, year after year after year, a consistent spiritual blessing. But again... I don't know whether they're bursting the seams of the facility, and I don't know how many of the people from the local congregations participate. It's a form, but does it? do we fill it with something? Youth camps and uh, winter retreats and, and uh, backpacking trips. I mean, that, Dave, thanks again for those slides last night. I mean, that, that was terrific, just to see uh, not only you old people getting older, but the... <laughs> The young people growing up and, and just to see the kind of continuity, and that's such a small slice of life because that's not very many people that could go on those backpacking adventures, but how rich it has been for those who have participated. Or Team Baja and Weekend Witness. Those are great opportunities too, but I don't know how fully our churches take advantage of that. Dave could tell us. Some churches are really gung-ho about that, and every time they can get back in the, in, the, in the cycle, they go. But I think other congregations probably have never been on a weekend witness, have never sent young people to Team Baja. And then other service projects, like recently, some uh, uh, on the youth committee have uh, sponsored, uh, and the Harvest Church that has sponsored the service project for some of the military families up around Camp Pendleton. I mean, those are all great things. So there's a nice long list, many, many opportunities, but you can ignore them all. And your life probably won't change dramatically, but the life of the body will suffer greatly from your neglect, from your indifference, from your bad choices. Now here let me just go back and pick up the point that I skipped over in terms of leadership, and particularly in terms of promoting unity among the leaders, and I'll just mention these things too just for the sake of at least getting them in your notes, and again you can talk about them. Given the theological and other kinds of tensions that can exist among our uh, elders and, and ministers, um, these aren't great, brilliant insights, just some things that, that might help. Um, pulpit exchanges. Most of the time we only ask each other to fill pulpits when we want to go on vacation. Um, what about the deeper necessity of getting the ministers in the regional church around to all of the local congregations of the regional church so that you can hear firsthand what these different, how these different men minister the Word? I mean, I'll tell you, if I had been invited to churches through the presbytery over the years, there probably would have been few people who thought that I could not preach the gospel of Christ if they'd heard me firsthand. But as long as I was boxed up down in Chula Vista and nobody came to visit us, then that kind of a false impression could pretty much go on unthreatened. And that's true of people on other sides of questions. 
And maybe we ought to get really bold, and instead of saying, I disagree with that minister so he's never coming to my pulpit, maybe we ought to invite him and say, and we want you to preach on the topic that we disagree about. Let's hear how you bring that out. What is it in the Scriptures that convinces you that that is true? Now, I don't want to open the doors to everybody outside. No, don't laugh too soon. But if we cannot open our doors to fellow ministers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, ministers in good and regular standing, then there's something really sectarian growing in our midst. We can't do that. And again, I suspect that if we heard even some emphases or some ideas that we don't agree with in the context of a man of God who loves the Lord and who loves His Word and who does believe that he has biblical reasons for his opinion, he's not just you know, making it up out of whole cloth, then it would add to the trust and the confidence that provides a context then for us to continue to talk about these disagreements. I think regional elders meetings, teaching and ruling elders, and maybe including deacons, would be um, uh, really helpful. And, and on the ministerial oversight committee, as we're sort of looking around for a reason to exist, uh, I thought even about that perhaps as a vehicle for promoting uh, times, maybe a couple of times a year, getting local elders in either the northern part of our presbytery or the middle section or down in the south and so forth together to talk together, to pray together, the kinds of things that we get a little taste of at Presbytery, but it goes by really fast. Um, and I've even, I even, one time I had a radical idea about church visitation. Instead of having the visitation committee do church visits, I thought, what about if sessions visited one another? So that instead of, I mean, because that's what you end up with, visitation committee is a co- combination of teaching elders and ruling elders from different churches, And that's certainly fine, but why not have a unit that already has a kind of a a, a collective identity, a, 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 a way of ministering, a way of thinking and praying together, going to talk to another group of men and even maybe a congregation, doing the kinds of things that we do in regular church visits. How are things going? Now, I can imagine we might say, oh, that'd be so frightening because they'd be looking at our stuff. They'd be... They'd know what's going on, and they might judge us. Well, you see, that kind of paranoid fear is already an indication that we're in trouble. Now, it might or might not be mechanically possible, but I at least thought at one time the churches in the San Diego County area could do that. And you just take turns. We'll visit you, you visit you, you visit you, you visit, and then we'll go the other way, and then we'll go across, you know, just like you do when you're playing cards. <coughs> So, sessions visiting sessions. And then, do lunch. Ministers and elders need to get together. And here I'll just allude to uh, when, um, when I was involved on the Judicial Committee, when Mr. Irons was uh, accused, I just thought that I couldn't do that work at a distance from him. And so I called him and asked if I could meet him up in the... Uh, Westwood, and, and, we, and we met two or three times, and we talked face to face. You know, if it was a civil court, you never could have done that because the defense lawyer would have been all over me for talking to his client. But, but Mac was happy to have us talking about those things. And, and I learned a great deal 
about a guy that I disagreed with on almost every topic by meeting him face to face and and hearing his heart and and uh, that was I mean that wasn't any great brilliant idea I just but I thought you know if if I did this with more other ministers particularly again ones that we disagree with or that we're just so distant from um, those would be important things okay I'm getting the high sign and that was my last. Was that my last? Yeah, do lunch was the last one. So, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> there's those double meanings for you, you know. All right. Well, again, I, I apologize that all of that is is so suggestive, but I hope it will be suggestive, and you'll be able to think through some of those things. But again, remember, forms are useless if they're empty. But if you fill them, they will be richly valuable for enhancing the corporate life, not only of our local congregations, but of our regional church as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing us together as one new man through your atoning death on the cross. Thank you for giving us your one spirit to distribute a multiplicity of gifts to be used for the building up of the one body, for the effecting of the common good. Thank you for placing us sovereignly in our local congregations and by extension in our regional church. We know that the mixture of people that are in our local churches and that are in our regional church have been placed not at random, not simply as the result of human dynamics, but by your own sovereign selection. And so we know the people that we need to serve. We can see some of them here today as we look across this congregation. We can see others every Sunday as we meet in our local congregations. Will you please help us to desire more than anything else to do one another good, not to look out for our own interests, but for the interests of others, because those are the interests of Christ himself. May we give ourselves up to fruitful service, and may everyone have all that they need, gathered together, pressed down, shaken together, and and flowing over, O Lord, as you give in your abundant grace. Grant us these mercies, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're dismissed.